Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you've done for us today, Lord. Thank you for allowing me to, to preach your word tonight. Have me say nothing you wouldn't want me to say, Lord. Use me only as a mouthpiece. Thank you for this uh, church, Lord, and the ability we have to serve serve in it. Pray for the um, pray for the, the audience to get something out of the message, Lord, and get something from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. When I was younger, I would I would get into trouble in school a lot. And so usually around uh, third, fourth, fifth grade, I was quite the troublemaker. And I know it's hard to believe, me being me, how could I be a troublemaker? I have that same thought sometimes, but I was, I was a troublemaker. And so growing up, there is, there'd be a lot of things I would do, and I would disobey my teacher because I was a punk. And so growing up, I, I, was, I would fall into that stereotypical little kid who, who wouldn't listen to anything the teacher says. That was me. I was a, I was a troublemaker. And, and there's a remedy for this in our school, though. Our teacher had something. There, it was called strikes. It was a disciplinary action. And what the strikes were, would there be a whiteboard behind where the, the teacher was teaching, and there'd be a list of our names, all the students' names on that board, and by the names, there'd be a certain number of strikes. That's where the name came from. So there'd be lines by our names, and that would be every time you did something wrong, every time you didn't listen, every time you weren't paying attention, the teacher would come by your name and give you a strike. And how it worked is if you got three strikes, you do something called the wall. And what the wall was is when the rest of your friends were out at recess and the rest of your friends were out playing and having a lot of fun, whether it was outside or in the gym, you'd be um, standing on a wall and you'd, they'd give you a towel and a, and a bucket of water and you'd be scrubbing the wall clean. And the wall was clean because it was full of kids cleaning every day, but you'd scrub it anyways. And so that was, the, that was what would happen if you got three strikes. And, and there wasn't much of a day where I wasn't cleaning the wall because that was just how I was. I would always get three strikes, and then the next level up, you would get sent to the principal's office for a, a stern talking to, and, and the next level up from there, you would get detention, which was you coming in on a sat early on a Saturday morning and doing work for the school all day. And like I said, there wasn't much of a day where I didn't get three strikes. And, and I remember one particular time, and, and it must have been, I don't know, near the end of the school year, because my teacher was fed up with me. Mrs. Sims was her name. And I remember this one particular time when I was in class, I was doing what I would do, goofing off, not paying attention, not listening. And I was in class, sitting, sitting with my friend, and I saw a funny picture in my history book. I remember it was my history book. And I, I saw this funny picture, and I bumped my friend on the shoulder and pointed towards it and we were laughing and chuckling and it was to my dismay that that when my teacher saw this happening like I said she was fed up with me she was done giving me these strikes and so when my teacher saw this happen she looked at me she stopped teaching and she turned around and she walked to that board and she went up to my name with the marker and she went strike 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 and I didn't even know you could get over 10 strikes, but that day I got over 10 strikes. I'm pretty sure the school record will still be there. And so I, I had gotten strikes. My name was filled, and she yelled, Tim, go to the principal's office. And so I got up, and I started walking to the principal's office. But I remember what was going through my head. It, it wasn't necessarily fear of my teacher because she, she couldn't really do much to me. And that's just how a rebellious kid thinks with a lack of respect for authority, like I had. And you just, you have this, you have this feeling of, of disrespect towards the teacher. But, but I remember this particular feeling of not being afraid of her. 
And I wasn't afraid of her because she, she really had no authority to come up and, and smack me or throw me across the room or, or spank me. She didn't have that authority because that was not her job. That was my, my dad's job who was my proper authority. And so I remember this feeling of protection that I felt from my dad as I was, as I was walking out of the classroom and all the classmates were looking at me and I was chuckling because it was cool to be the troublemaker. And as I was walking out of this classroom, I had this feeling of protection that, that my teacher wasn't going to do anything to me because my dad had a certain level of protection over me because that was his job. And so as I was walking out of the classroom with that feeling in my head, I, I imagine that same picture as Amos comes to Israel and prophesies against the enemies of, it, of, the, Gent- or the enemies of Israel, the Gentile nations. You see, because Amos would come to Israel in the northern kingdom of Israel, where it kind of tells us where he is in chapter 6 of Amos. He, when it, when uh, Amos comes to the northern kingdom of Israel, he prophesies against these nations, and he prophesies against these nations that, that have done wrong to Israel. And so I can see that it, how, how Amos, or how Israel would feel as they're hearing these prophecies against people who had have done wrong against them, and they have this feeling of protection that God's going to protect them despite what their enemies are doing to them. And so that's, that's what, what's going on in chapter 1. But before we get into that and start reading chapter 1, I, I want to look at something that's important for building the narrative here. I want to look at Israel's kingdom. Because what we see historically and what we see where they were at is really important to understanding why Amos was prophesying against them. And what you see in Israel's kingdom is Israel's prosperous predicament. You know, Israel was in all physical ways prosperous at this time. Now, they were under the king and under the rule of, of King Jeroboam. And so King Jeroboam was a wicked king spiritually. And King Jeroboam didn't have a love for the Lord. And he didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. But what, what you couldn't say about King Jeroboam is that, that he was bad for, for Israel on the physical sense, not a spiritual sense, but a physical sense, because in all ways, geographically and militaristically, under King Jeroboam, Israel grew. Their borders grew, and they were, they were a prosperous kingdom. And this was at a time when, when the king, where it was the two kingdoms, so it was the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, but they were both part of the Jewish nation. And so this was a, this was a time where both of these kingdoms were prospering. They were in a prosperous predicament. And the two kingdoms would have perceived themselves as in a good place spiritually. If you know anything about Jewish theology and how they thought, they would have, which we can see in Job's friends, by the way, they would have equated their physical success with God's blessings and their and spiritual blessings on their lives. So, if you remember Job, the story of Job and how he was cursed and his family was killed, and and and, and his friends, or, or sorry, his his family was killed and his servants were killed and his animals were killed and he started having diseases. When Job's friends came to him, they came to him and said, "Listen, you must have hidden sin in your life." Because, because all this bad thing's happening to you. And what we know is that, that he didn't have hidden sin, hidden sin in his life. And that's not, that doesn't necessarily, that isn't what it means, but, but that's what they, that's what they equated it to. One commentator said in support of this, Jewish theology equated prosperity with God's blessings. And as long as the people were enjoying the good life, they were sure God was pleased with them. They knew what the law said, talking about Amos 1, about their sins, but they chose to ignore the warnings. So that's where Israel's mindset is. They believed they were not only right with God, but they believed they had his blessings. And so they were happy. And they were about to get a lot happier 
when Amos comes to the kingdom of Israel and starts prophesying against their enemies. Because like I said, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to start prophesying against his enemies. And it starts off in verse 3 with, Thus saith the Lord. And from there you see God's evaluation of the Gentile nation. That, that word evaluation means the making of a judgment. So God was making a judgment against these nations that had, that had done wrong against Israel. Starting in verse 3, if you'll read with me. Amos 1, starting at verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now this is going to show up about eight times in our text, this saying what I read just there, for three transgressions of, and for four, from the blanket. And what this means isn't necessarily a specific number of sins. It's not t- talking, it's not saying that they sinned specifically three times, and that specific fourth time is, is ju- God's judgment. That's not what it's saying. It, it more comes the idea that Israel had, or that the Gentile nations had sinned again, and again, and again, and they pushed God again, and again, and again, and they tested God again, again and again and again and now God was coming to judge them it gives that more of that that idea and so that's what we see starting with Damascus so let me read that verse 3 again thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron so Damascus, or Gilead rather, was, was a place where the Israelites dwelled. And so God's saying, listen, you came to Israel and you threshed them. It means stomped. It means, they, it means that they were tormenting Israel. They were bringing harm to Israel. And Israel was God's chosen people. And so, God, and so God through Amos is saying, you've done wrong to Israel and they're my chosen people. So I'm going to protect them and I'm going to judge you. Damascus, and then he goes to Gaza, he turns to Gaza in verse 6. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. He turns to Gaza, because they carried away the captive, the whole captivity to deliver them to Edom, up to Edom. And so um, Gaza was where the Philistines would dwell, if we all know who the Philistines were in their history with Israel. And so the Philistines were taking these Israelites and they were they were selling them as slaves to to the to the to the people of Edom, Israel's longtime enemies. And what was interesting about this is is in the societal norms, this would this would somewhat be normal in the time of war such as this. For for, for Israelites to take the women and children as captive and to sell them as slaves, this would be this would be somewhat normal, and and it wasn't it wasn't. It's re- even recorded in the Bible at times, not supported, but recorded in the Bible as, as people would do this. It was just normal for people to do in this day. But God's saying, listen, you did this, Gaza, Philistines, you did this against my people. You did this against Israel. And because you did this to my people, you will be punished and I'm going to judge you. And God turns to Tyrus, Tyrus in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly government. So pretty much they fell into the same trap that, that Gaza did, that the Philistines did, and God's punishing for that, them for that. And in, a, in the same way, the difference was they had peace with the Jewish people and they broke it. Then we see God turn his judgment to Edom themselves in verse 11. Verse 11, Amos 1 still. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword, and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. 
And so we see here that, that instead of kind of specific sins, it's an overall uh, theme of Edom's time against Israel. They've, they've hated Israel perpetually. This went back all the way to Esau. If you remember, Edom was the descendants of Esau and Israel from Jacob. And, and so he's saying this. He's saying, listen, you, you've perpetually hated, hated the Israelites as your enemies, and they're my people, and so I'm going to protect them. He says that to Edom. And then he turns to Ammon in verse 13. Ammon, or so, yeah, verse 13. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they could have, because they have ripped up the woman with the child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. Now this one is interesting. Because Amos is, is prophesying against the children of Ammon because not only did they enlarge their borders in attacking the Israelites in Gilead, but they did it, they, well, as they were doing this, they killed women and the children that they carried. And, and I think it's really interesting here because, because the Bible is acknowledging something here. It's acknowledging the woman that they killed and the woman that the, and the child that the, was with the woman, meaning ca- the, the child the woman was carrying. And so the, the Bible's saying you've killed the, the woman and you've killed the child that they're carrying, acknowledging this child as a, as a living being in the woman's belly, and for that you're going to be punished. And I, I think that's so interesting because as we live in, in this time, this was so, such an abomination and such a wicked thing that the Lord would acknowledge two lives being taken here, but we pay for that in our society today. And so I thought that was interesting and worth noting, and then we see it turn to Moab. Moab in chapter 2, sorry, in chapter 2. Of Amos, verse one, that saith the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And this was a very specific sin in verse two. You'll see that it says, because he burned the bones of the, of the king of Edom into lime. And so this sin was a sin against the dead, and it wasn't even necessarily a sin against Israel. This particular sin had nothing to do with Israel, but it's showing us something here and something we see more of in this next text. Because we're going to see a little bit of a shift here. Because from now we've seen Israel, Israel having their enemies, and, and Amos is in Israel prophesying right now. And so Israel's listening to their enemies be prophesied against. And as, as it's human nature to do, they were probably feeling a bit of fulfillment here, seeing their enemies be judged. They were probably feeling a, a bit of fulfillment as Amos is prophesying against these Gentile nations for the wicked things they did. And, and it's just normal. That's just how we would feel if, we, if wrong is done against us and it's being dealt with. There's, there's a certain feeling of fulfillment there. So as they're listening to this, and, and I, I don't know what it looks like. Maybe it was, maybe there was some cheering. Maybe they were just happy on the inside and, and it didn't really show. Maybe, maybe they were standing next to their friends, whispering to each other how, how great this was, that this was happening. I don't know what it looked like, but, but what we do know is that there's a certain fulfillment they had here. Well, as the Israelites were listening to this, I imagine their countenance drops a little bit as verse 4 starts. Verse 4 of chapter 2, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. For they have, or because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments and their lies have caused them to err after, which, after the which their fathers have walked. And so this is a shift here because now God's not judging the Gentiles. He's judging the Jewish people. And he's still in Israel. So I imagine Israel sitting here in, the, in this moment and, 
and, and listening to this, and, and maybe their countenance drops a little bit, but, but they weren't necessarily on good terms with Judah, so maybe, so maybe they're, they're saying, well, Judah deserves it. They obviously have hidden sin, as the Jewish people would have thought in that time. They, they, they obviously deserve it. They deserve what they're getting. Us, though, Israel, though, we, we don't deserve that. So we see God was protecting Israel because they were his people, but, but now we turn to, the, to Judah. And then, then this happens. You go to verse 6. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And I can imagine the, the knot they would feel in their stomach when they heard this. The, the fear that would come over them as now Amos in their own, in their own city Amos and their own kingdom turns to them to evaluate them as well. I can imagine them, them now looking to each other and, and their faces aren't the same as it was before. I can imagine them the, the fear that took over them. I, I imagine it as the same feeling as I was walking to the principal's office after getting in trouble. And, and, I, and I just had that feeling of protection there was a certain level of protection I felt that, that my teacher wouldn't harm me. But as I'm walking to the, to the principal's office, down the long hallway that, that, that led to it, with my head low and my feet heavy and my friends weren't, allowed, weren't around to be laughing with me. And, and I was walking and I realized well, what I did was wrong. And now I'm, I'm going to the principal's office where, where because my dad worked at the school, my dad will be waiting for me with a belt, and I'll be judged for, for, for the wrong I did. And I imagine them having and me in, in that same feeling as, as they had. But, but God had a reason for his evaluation on his own people. You know, we saw the Lord confronting these nations that did wrong. He went to Edom and said, and said Edom, you, ha- you have perpetually hated my people. You've had this hate towards my people for, 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 the, for the history of your nations. And since they're my people, and since I love them, and since I'm going to protect them, I'm going to judge you. And, and he would turn to Ammon and say, Ammon, you've done harm to my people. And because they're my people, and I'm going to protect them, I'm going to judge you. And then, then he, when he turned to, to Tyrus and said, Tyrus, you've done wrong against my people. And since they're my people, I'm going to protect you, but since they're my people, it doesn't exclude them from the judgment, but it makes them all the more eligible for it. As, as, as they're hearing this and, and coming to this realization that Amos touched Israel's enemies along with Israel because them being God's people did not exclude them from judgment, but it made them all the more eligible. Their eligibility for, for God's evaluation. You know, as I was walking to that that principal's office with my head low and my feet heavy and I got to the principal's office and I was judged accordingly for the wrong I did you know that wasn't that wasn't the last of of the punishment throughout my life there would be a lot of punishment for wrong things I did and throughout my life I would get spanked a lot and, and throughout my life I would be punished a lot but but I remember I remember this one specific time and I went to my dad's room because, because as a kid, you don't get it. As a child, you don't get why your dad punishes you in the way he does. You don't understand it. And so as, I, as this feeling of my dad hates me and, and he doesn't love me and he's doing this because he wants to. No. And, and, and as I walked up to my, his room and, and waiting for him to come, the longest five minutes of my life, if you know, if you've had that feeling, and as I'm waiting for him to come up and he walks up, 
I remember this particular time, it's engraved in my head, we, we've talked about it since then, uh, of this time where he came and he, he stood there for a minute and, and I remember tears in his eyes. And he said, Tim, I'm, I'm not doing this because I want to. I'm doing it because I love you. I, I, I'm not doing this because I hate you. I'm doing it because you need it. I, I'm not punishing you, you because, because I hate you. I'm punishing you because it's what you need to grow. And I imagine the, the Israel, and, and I know the Israelites in that same position. So if you're here tonight, I, I want you to take home this. As God's chosen people, we are just as eligible for God's evaluation as our enemies. No more, no less. And I just want to encourage you to study up for your own evaluation and to acknowledge your eligibility for it. Because God loves you so much that he will evaluate your lives too. So think about this as we close in prayer and as, as Brother Grant comes up and preaches another message. Does your evaluation meet up to his expectation? When closing a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you've done for us today, Lord. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity to preach your word. And I pray that we'd all keep attention for Brother Grant, Lord, and, and that we'd get something out of his sermon and the work that he put into it, Lord. And, and thank you for everything you've done. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Tim. I just think it's just a, I, I get the feeling of, of the discipline. <laughs> I, I had quite a bit growing up. I was quite a, uh, an insane child, uh, as well as Brother Tim, from what it sounds like. But just as I get older, that realization that God has a purpose in the punishment, and I'm so thankful for that. <clears throat> if you join me this evening in Romans chapter number one, as we start uh, this evening, we're going to go ahead and, and uh, jump in just for the sake of time. We're going to start at Romans chapter 1, verse number 13. Paul writes this, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, so much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This evening, the title of my message is Paul's clarification of his identification. And those are big words because I want people to think that I'm smart. But basically what that means is that Paul is willing to clarify or come forward and, and say he's going to make this known what he is willing to identify with or what he is willing to associate himself with. Let's pray as we get started. Dear Jesus, I pray this evening that you would just bless me as I as I share the message that you've already uh, given and preached to me, dear God, this evening, and I pray that you would bless your church and build your church. And you may pray. Amen. <clears throat> As we get started, I want to uh, tell a little bit of a story. It's a, it's a fictitious story, but I, I hope there's some relatability in it as we get into it. Imagine a young boy, a young boy named Brett. And uh, let's put Brett at 13 years old. Brett has recently been undergoing some changes in his life, some physical changes. He's grown six inches in the last six months, and his mom is having a very difficult time keeping up having pants for him to wear. My mom never had that problem. <clears throat> he started wearing deodorant to cover up his body odor. He's even been switched from the tenor section in the choir to the bass section on account of his voice dropping a whole octave. I also never seem to have that. Brett is now also starting to take interest in a girl at school, young Miss Audrey. 
These aren't the only changes that Brett is going through in his life. Also, his relationship with his parents is, is shifting a little bit. And so everyone seems to notice these physical changes, but this relationship issues that he's having with his mom, these changes are maybe not as well noticed. But as, as his mom would take him and drop him off at school, whether in, or whether drop him off or pick him up, he requests that she did it in the back. And he didn't want Miss Audrey to see the old beat-up minivan their family drove. Brett would be at his house, he'd be in his room hanging out with friends, and his, his mom would come in just to say hi or check on him or maybe even do laundry or ask him about dinner, and instead of being thankful and excited to see his mom, he'd, he'd push her away and shut the door and embarrassed that she came and bothered them. In church, instead of sitting with his parents, he'd, he'd want to sit in the back with his friends and, and uh, similar to uh, Brother Tim in history class, cut up during the service or maybe play on their phones or whatnot. And it's interesting because this relationship, this relationship, sorry, I'm not sure what that is. This relationship that he had with his mother had changed to the point where he, he previously loved her and he loved to be around her and he loved to spend time with her, but now to the point where that wasn't really something that he valued. And especially out in public or with his friends, he wasn't really, it wasn't, there was no value to be associated with his mother. It's interesting and it's like he's forgotten the only reason he is where he is in life because of his parents in the first place. <laughs> I, in our text this evening that I just read, kind of a little bit of historical background, not much of this is in the text, but we see Christians at Rome. And we do know historically from this time that Rome is a big place, and Rome is a bad place. And Rome is filled with proud people. It's filled with arrogant people. It's filled with great philosophers, great philosophies. It's filled with kings, princes. You think of Rome as this big empire conquered everything that there was in that day. And there was an impressiveness that Rome had. So oftentimes, maybe Christians would come to Rome where they'd, where they'd get saved when they're in Rome, and then this relationship that they had with Christ would start to wane. And when the Roman soldiers were by, they'd become a little bit ashamed that they were Christians. I'm thankful for this, that um, Paul didn't have those feelings. <laughs> Paul's, Rome's impressiveness did not impress Paul whatsoever. In fact, this evening, I see four things in this text. I see four attitudes that Paul gives that are in direct opposition to these feelings of ashamedness towards Christ in Rome. Number one, I see this. If we look in verse number 13, it says, Now I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto. The first attitude that we see this evening in the text is Paul has a desire or a longing to get to Rome. Paul says this, I have purposed to get to you. This word purpose has the idea of desire or longing. He's not coming as a tourist. He's not coming as a friend. He's not coming to study Roman culture. He's not coming to learn. He's coming to preach the gospel. He has a desire and he has a longing. I think of Paul up to this point, and this is a, a, a very long list, but hang with me. Paul has preached in Antioch, Damascus, Sidon, Tyre, Caesarea, Joppa, Jerusalem, Derba, Tarsus, Iconium, Lystra, Colossae, Miletus, Perga, Patmos, Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, Philippi, Troas, Thessalonica, Berea, Malta. Everywhere Paul went, he preached the gospel. Excuse my voice. So the question is, why Rome? If it's such a hard place to get into, and it's such an impressive place, and there's so much persecution that is there, why Rome? I mean, you've been all these places, Paul. You've preached the gospel. You've started all these churches. He's the greatest church planner slash missionary of all time. No one would ever do more than him. Why Rome? And yet we see this desire and this longing to get to Rome anyways. 
Paul wanted to go to Rome, and before our text begins, he, he claims that he wants to start a church there. And he claims that he wants to fellowship with Christians, but I believe the reason that he get there was bigger than that. This obligation, and or I'm sorry, this duty and this desire that he had to um, go to Rome, it, it comes from a feeling that he had about the Roman people. Uh, specifically, we see this in verse number 14, and the second attitude, he, he had an obligation and he had a duty. First, he had a desire and a longing. He said, I've purposed to come to you. I've purposed to get there. Now we see this obligation and we see this, du- this duty that Paul has. And it's really a, because he's viewing the Roman people in a very unique way. If we read verse number 14, it, Paul says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Now, this is just the way Grant Harrelson reads his Bible. I'm sure none of you do. But I read my Bible this way and I think of what, what I know of debt and I say this. How is Paul in debt to somebody he ain't even met? And I'm thinking, debt in the, the known definition that I know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, wait a second, if, if when I borrow something from someone, until I pay it back, I'm, I'm in debt. So let's say Micah spots me a 20. This is theoretically, he doesn't have $20. But if Micah were to spot me a 20, until I were to pay him back, I'd be in debt to him. So I say, okay. So I go back and I look, wait a second. Uh, Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. So there's nothing that he could have received from Rome in order to give back to them. Well, what is Paul saying? Well, actually, there's another type of debt that's not as well known. If Brother Tim is not around Micah, and he says, I need you to get something to Micah, he gives me $20 that's supposed to go to Micah. Until then, I give it to him. I'm not in debt to Tim. Who am I in debt to? I'm in debt to Micah. You see, what Paul is saying is back in Acts chapter 9, God gave me something. Christ gave me something on the road to Damascus. He gave me the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not my job to hold on to it for myself. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter that I've been to all these places and I've started all these churches. I I can't just stop there until I get to Rome and until I give every single person possible the gospel of Jesus Christ, I owe them. This wasn't the type of debt. This, This wasn't just a loan that I could hit the bank back later. This wasn't just a credit card that I could work towards paying off. Back here in this time, when you were in debt to someone, you owe them all your time, all your life, all your money. Paul's saying, I, I don't just have a desire to get here. I have a duty to get here. I owe these people my life. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until I get there, I'm in debt to them. <clears throat> I just blows my mind. and I, I, I never really think that way. <laughs> It blows my mind that I, I, I feel an obligation or a duty to share the gospel, but not out of a love for them. Most of the time, it's because I, I need to check off my spiritual checklist. And this attitude that Paul presents of obligation or duty is, a, is one that's very convicting to me personally. Notice this, Paul wasn't interested in only giving to the gospel to some people. We see this on the second half of verse number 14. He says, I am, I'm sorry, the whole verse, I am better to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. What do these four categories mean? Well, here's what Paul's saying. Greeks would have been this upper class of people if you were to divide the class or divide the people into two classes. You have these Greeks, which would symbolize um, the, this upper class of very rich people, very wealthy people, people that had um, very well-known relatives. Think of royalty or, or, uh, or politics. Think of war generals or, or uh, f- famous philosophers. Then you see this barbarians is this idea of just the working class people. So you have tradesmen and you, and you have things of that nature, fishermen and, and things like that. And so Paul saying, I I didn't just come to Rome for them. 
I didn't just come for the, for the kings and the princes and the philosophers. And I didn't just come for the dignitaries. You know what? I came for the fishermen. I came for the worksmen. I came for the craftsmen. I came for, the, for everyone. He says, I came for the wise and the unwise. I don't care. My dad used to say this when I was coming up, 8 to 80, blind, crippled, or crazy. That's who gets the gospel. And I see this idea in Rome as he says, everyone gets it. The Greeks, the barbarians, the wise and the unwise. You know what Paul's saying? Our gospel this evening is indiscriminate. It goes to everyone. I pray that we wouldn't get so high-minded as to think that the gospel is only something that a few people get. Or that something that the gospel is only a few people are blessed to be able to receive and that essentially God is just playing Russian roulette with who's going to join him in paradise. I, that's a, a cancer that's eating away at a lot of my friends and a lot of uh, Christianity. It just breaks my heart. And I think of this, every time somebody tells me something like that, if the gospel can save Grant Harrelson, it can save anybody. I promise you that. The gospel is indiscriminate. And it wasn't just Paul. It's nowadays too. See the next attitude that Paul gives in verse number 15, so much as in me is, I am filled to the top with all the strength that I have. I am ready to preach the gospel at Rome. This didn't mean that Paul had the Romans road studied out. I mean, he hadn't even written the Romans road at this point. But this doesn't mean that Paul's ship was packed and ready to go as he says, I'm ready to get there. What this means is Paul is saying, this is the Greek word prothumos. He means I'm excited. He says, I'm ready, I'm eager. You see, Paul didn't just have a desire and a longing. He didn't just feel obligated and have a duty. But Paul says, I'm ready. This word prothumos means he was so excited. It physically quickened him. Paul wasn't dragging his Oh, I got to go to Rome. Paul was excited. This, this, this task that God had given him physically quickened him from his excitement. He said, I'm going to Rome and I'm going to preach the gospel. This is also where I feel like a lot of Christians like myself fall off. I, I feel like I, I could relate to these first two attitudes that Paul has. I feel like I have a desire to do the right thing. I feel like I have a, a desire to be a witness or a desire to spread the gospel. And I even, again, like I mentioned, I always feel obligated and I always have the Holy Spirit prodding on my heart. I know it's my duty as a Christian, but I, a lot of times I struggle being excited to obey God. And I think that it's very convicting to see Paul saying, I'm not just doing this because God's making me. I'm not just doing this because I have to. I'm excited to serve God. I'm excited to go there and, and potentially give up my life for those people. I'm excited. To obey. The next attitude we see this evening is the strongest. As we look down in verse 16, this powerful, well-known verse, we see this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And I, and I wonder if we've seen this, this kind of this, this journey with Paul and, and his, his attitude as he's ready to go to Rome. And we see this. Paul was unashamed to preach the gospel in Rome because he, he recognized and identified with the power that it contained. See, Paul wasn't there preaching his own stuff. Paul didn't go all the way to Rome. He didn't travel all over the world because he was perpetuating his own gospel. No, the reason for Paul's proud confidence to identify with the gospel is the gospel message has tremendous power. If we continue to look at verse 16, we'll notice this. Notice where the power comes from. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power 
of God. You see, Paul wasn't interested in perpetuating his own power. He had no power himself to change lives or transform Rome. He didn't have it. It was the power of the gospel. This Greek word that Paul uses for power is the word dunamis, and that's where we get our English word dynamite from. And I think what Paul's saying is this. The gospel has transforming power. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, if I were to put dynamite this evening in a building and blow it up, that building would look absolutely nothing like it did before the dynamite blew up. Paul's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ came in my life, and when that power of the gospel exploded in my life, my life doesn't look anything the same. It's completely transformed. That is the power of the gospel, and that's what I've got to get to Rome. Notice next the product that it produces. In verse number 16, Paul writes, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that awesome? The gospel isn't just something that we can know with our head knowledge. It's, it's not just something cool that is written in the Bible. Salvation is the product of the power of the gospel. Paul knew the power of the gospel because he had experienced it firsthand. I referenced earlier back in Acts 9, it changed his life. He'd never be the same. Because of this change, he would take this message anywhere and everywhere he went. Every person he saw, he preached the gospel. Every synagogue he went, he preached the gospel. Every town he went, he shared the gospel or he got kicked out trying, got killed in a lot of them. <clears throat> the product that it produces... Another thing that I notice as I read this is salvation only works if you believe in it. Unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And this is, it's interesting because Paul never mentions any other requirements to be saved. He doesn't mention anything about baptism. He doesn't mention anything about a sacrament of any kind. He mentions believing. Believing on the gospel and that's it. And that's a personal decision that unfortunately Paul couldn't make for the world. If he could have, he would have. The gospel only has power if you believe it. And also notice this in the end of verse 16 to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, this idea that the gospel is indiscriminate. It goes to anyone and everyone. <clears throat> I think this evening as I, I read this story, I, I think there are a few things that Paul wants even us to get. As I believe the truths in the Bible are timeless this evening, the first thing that I think is that Paul wants is, I think Paul, pe people, or Paul wants people to read this and get saved. I think that's arguably his, his, his goal, his primary focus, even this evening. As Paul was to tell the power that the gospel has and how it changed his life and, and write about the indiscriminate nature and the power and the, and the product that the gospel contains, I think he wants everyone to believe in it and get saved. And I think in a way this is embracing the gospel's might. I think that's the first step, the first thing. And I said, I would say this evening, I, I notice as the pastor's out of town and it's on a Sunday night, this is the cream of the crop of Bible Baptist Church. And if I were to guess, I would say most, if not all of you are saved. But if, if you're not, I, I don't really care how long you've been going to churches or what your last name is. If, if that's not something you have done, you need to do it right here this evening. After you've done that, embrace the gospel's might. The next thing I think is to radiate its light. When we know the gospel is the power of God, we'll be compelled to share it to others. And I think in, in my life, this looks like I'm a, I'm a big failure in this. I have it, and I have my get out of hell free card, and I'm holding on to it, and I'm not radiating the light. I'm just embracing the power of the gospel. I'm not giving it out. I think of opportunities that I'm not taking advantage of that I need to get better at, at a restaurant to the waitress after you've had a good testimony to him or her, 
I think of at the gas station or, or at Walmart. I think of on door knocking, you going to them. We see, uh, we see both in, in, in the Bible. We see not only people coming to Jesus, but we also see Jesus going and, and not literally knocking doors, but knocking on the doors of some people's heart. And I think door knocking and outreach is a good opportunity to get some tracks in people's hand and get a, begin a friendship with people. And this is something that, that I need to do more, that Grant Harrelson needs to do more. I think of this, I think of coworkers. That's one of the biggest things. I know I struggled. I had a coworker back in Oklahoma City and he was very anti-gospel and he was very anti-God. And, and oftentimes when I was around him, I, I was like, I don't go to a Bible college. I don't. He was real mean and real aggressive. And unfortunately, Paul doesn't make an allowance for that. And that's something that really convicted me was that even when it's hardest, it's still our job to be unashamed of the gospel. I think it's, it's my tendency and the tendency of, of humankind to only identify with the gospel when it's convenient. At church this evening or in any one of your given homes, we would all proudly stand up and say we're Christians. But then I wonder if, if out in the grocery store or, or out in Hy-Vee or out in Starbucks, if you'd willing to pass that track out to the person next to you in line, or, or maybe that'd be less convenient. And so it would probably make you not want to identify. And I'm thinking of my own life personally here. The truth is we're, we're prone to identify with the gospel only when it's convenient for us. Oftentimes we're proud to claim the name of Christ when really it doesn't need to be. We need to claim the name of Christ when we're out there in the world. So this evening as I close, just like Brett began to become ashamed of, what his, of his mother as he got older, I think of this even as a Christian in my own life. I got saved and I remember the time and I was excited and I was telling all my teachers at school I got saved on a Monday morning on the way to school. We had a 30-minute commute and my mom led me to the Lord and told all my teachers and my friends and I had rat, you know, all kind of gold stars from my teachers. They were excited. They didn't really know what it meant, but they were happy. They gave me a sticker. And uh, I just remember being excited. And, and as, as good as an eight-year-old kid could, I was on fire for God. And then as, as I get older, just like Brett's relationship with his mom wanes, I I feel my relationship with Christ wanes, and I begin to not want to identify with Him. And this is obviously the wrong attitude and the wrong mentality and not a Christ-like one. And I think is one of the biggest things that, that Christ gives us commandments in the Bible, quite a few, and I think some of the utmost important are having a relationship with Him. I think of the Great Commission as the next one. And so Brother Tim mentioned God evaluation of our lives. And I, and I think when it comes time for God to evaluate us, we're all going to wish we had spread the gospel just a little bit more. And when God is evaluating us, we're all going to wish that we had just been unashamed more. This evening, number one, embrace the gospel's might. If you're not saved, do that. And number two, radiate its light. Think about what the gospel has done in your life. Think about how it changed you. And if you think about it, either you have no idea where you'd be if you hadn't got saved, or you know exactly where you'd be and you know the exact decisions that you'd make as an unlost person, let that, knowing that the power that the gospel has had in your life, let it motivate you to be unashamed and to give the gospel this evening. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Dear Jesus, <clears throat> pray this evening that you would use the message of your God in the hearts and the lives of your people. And I pray that it wouldn't just end in this I pray it wouldn't, it wouldn't just end in this uh, church, dear God, that as we go out as Bible Baptist Church, as the family of God, we would go and we would indiscriminately and unashamedly share the gospel with Brookings, South Dakota, and the cities beyond, dear God. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thanks, guys. You know, I think is interesting is that there's two very different attitudes in those sermons. So you have Amos 1, who Israel's, man, they're pumped that their enemies are receiving judgment. They're happy. And then we have Paul, 